Chapter Seven of the Finding of Halgren by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Gateway to Hell. Spud O'Malley at the controls of the ship held the craft in a vertical lift, while his eyes clung in horrible fascination to the mirrors that showed from a lower lookout the volcanic floor falling away. Amazement had almost stifled his breathing, until at last he let go a long breath that ended in a curse. The outrageous damn things he breathed, jumping they were, and leaping and flying on their leather wings, like a lot of black bats out of hell, and I'm thinking that's where they've taken Chet Bullard, and never again will he hold a ship like twas in the hollow of his hand, and him setting it down like a feather. And fly back home, he says to me. I can do it too, thanks to his teaching. But I'll fly back and leave that boy in the hands of those murdering devils. Tis little he knows the Irish. He was talking half under his breath, murmuring to himself, as if it helped him to see clearly the situation that must be faced. But to get to him, that's the trouble. I saw a big door go shut in that stone floor. They're cunning, clever beasts, I'll say that for em. And there was a raft of em, and plenty more down in hell where they live, I've no doubt. He moved forward on the ball control, and the great ship swept like a silvery shadow through the night toward the distant lighted crater rim. This he could see clearly, but the other side of the ring of mountains was black with shadow. And far out beyond, spread like a cloud over all the desolate world, was blackness. Spud drove the ship up another five thousand feet, and still that darkness spread out in inky pools where only an occasional mountain peak caught the flat rays of the sun. And what had Chet called these dark areas? Lake of dreams? Lake of death? Spud's superstitious mind was aquiver with dread and ominous premonition to which the empty frozen waste below him gave added force. I'll have to wait, he told himself. The light of the moon, I mean the earth, is bright, but not bright enough. I'll just wait till the sun climbs higher. When it shines down into that hole, that is the gateway to hell, and well I know it, then I can see what is there. Then maybe I can find some way to get inside, and I hope the lad lives till I get there. He circled back, swept down in a long, leisurely flight, and came again to the place of gently sloping rock where Chet had first landed. And he searched till he found the identical spot and laid the ship down on a level keel. Far away, the sun was gilding the hard outlines of mountains that ringed them in. Spud did not know how long he must wait. Had he realized that it must be a matter of days, it is probable he would have donned the metal suit and started out. But instead, he busied himself in a careful investigation of the storeroom and a checkup of ammunition and supplies that were there. The lunar day, as all Earthmen know, is a matter of nearly fifteen of Earth's days. Spud O'Malley was wild with impatience when at last the sun was striking less flatly across the land and he knew that the time had come when he could start. 
He had sensed the change that took place in the world outside. From the lookouts of the control room, he had seen the bare rocks lose their white markings of hoar-frost, and at last actually quiver with heat as the sun beat upon them. He had seen the growing things that crept from every crevice and hollow, pale, colorless mosses that threw out long tendrils which licked across the hot rocks as if hungry for the nourishment the thin air brought. Spud knew nothing of the carbon dioxide which these pale green growths could combine with water under the sun's hot rays and build into vegetable tissue. But he marveled again and again at the hungry things that made a mesh of ropey strands across the smooth area about the ship. They even hung in drooping masses from the weird rocks beyond, and so light they were, they raised their heads hungrily in air, while the corded tendrils even threw themselves in contorted writhings at times when the sun struck with increasing warmth. A dead world, said Spud scornfully. How much the scientists back there don't know. First those living, flying devils, and now this. The whole place is fairly wriggling with life. It was then that he made one last flight over the inner crater and saw light on the floor of stone in the funneled depths. Then he sent the ship, like a rocket, down to the shelf of rock where Chet had begun his descent, and he worked with trembling fingers to adjust the metal suit and regulate the oxygen supply. He waited only to strap a couple of detonite pistols about him, then, with never a backward look, he let himself out through the air-locking doors and started pell-mell toward the inner crater. Like Chet, he had learned to gauge his tremendous strength. Like the master pilot, he threw himself down the rocky slope. But where Chet had leaped and stumbled in the darkness, O'Malley worked in full light. He came at last to the rocky floor, where molten stone in ages past had hardened to seal the throat of this vent. Hundreds of feet across, Spud estimated, smooth in appearance from above, but broken with deep crevices and excrescences where hot fluid stone had frozen in its moment of bubbling turbulence, and in one place where the floor was smooth, Spud found what he was searching for, a circular metal ledge that projected above the smooth rock, and within it a still smoother sheet of what appeared to be hammered metal. The door it is, whispered the pilot, half fearful of listening ears, and the gateway to hell. He grinned broadly at some thought. And here I've been told, twas of all places the easiest to get into. One little slip from grace, and there you were. Sure, and the priests were as wrong as the scientists. It must be heaven that's easy to crash, for the front door of Hades is shut fast, without even a keyhole to peep through. Then his face sobered to its customary homely lines. The poor boy, he exclaimed, I've got to get in some way. I wonder how hard and thick it is. He was raising a mass of black shining rock in his hands, a fragment that his strength would not have moved a fraction of an inch on earth. He steadied it above his head, preparing to crash it upon the metal door, then waited, stared incredulously at the black metal sheet, lowered the great stone silently, 
and turned to leap mightily, yet with never a sound, for the shelter of an upflung saw-toothed ridge. And from its shelter he watched the black door swing smoothly into the air, while, from the gapping black mouth of its pit beneath, incredible man-shapes of fish-belly white drew themselves up to the edge of the pit and perched there, where they might stretch their long necks into the light of the sun. Below them, Spud saw dangled long rat-like tails, and their wings, black and leathery, hung down too from their backs or dragged on the rocks behind, where some three or four of the owl-eyed creatures crawled out and walked across the rock toward the place where an Irish pilot waited and stared with unbelieving and horrified eyes from the concealment of his rocky fort. End of chapter 7